Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast. I'm Guy Swarbrick and this week we're delighted to have a very special guest, wheeler dealer Mike Brewer from the television. Good afternoon, Mike. How you doing? I think most of our listeners will know you from wheeler dealers, but your TV career started a few years before that, didn't it, with um, Deals on Wheels. What were you doing at that point and how did the show come about? Uh, well, it started six years before wheeler dealers, actually, um, 1997. I was a, a very successful, um, dare I say, South London car dealer. Me and my wife, we had a car business. We were doing incredibly well and bouncing along quite happy until um, somebody from Channel 4 phoned me and said uh, we got this idea for a car show we want to film a car dealer and uh, lots of people in London have recommended you because uh, you're a, an honest straightforward guy that hasn't got skeletons in his closet like some other car dealers and maybe you should have a go at it and uh, I, I refused to be honest I refused for six months I, I just didn't want to be a part of it I didn't want them filming me but they went ahead and made the programme anyway uh, called deals on wheels and then once they'd made the program they wanted to put a presenter in it it wasn't never presenter led but then they thought let's put a presenter in it and link the stories with a presenter uh, so they thought well let's get somebody real and genuine so uh, they come back to me and said would you rather than us feature you as part of buying and selling a car on TV would you present it so I, I actually went along for a bit of a laugh to the screen test and lo and behold I got the job and here I am 23 years later or whatever I'm still doing it and I know you have a car dealership again now, but did you put that on hold at that point or did you carry on doing both? Yeah, I carried on doing both for a while. I kept the car dealership going, or car dealing it in a sense. I kept that going for a, a further two years. But then very quickly, uh, you know, I got headhunted by uh, BBC to go and uh, present Top Gear. I then got a, another show on Channel 4 called Driven uh, because they didn't want to lose me to Top Gear. So they come, wrote a show for me effectively. And it, it just picked up, the, you know, the work pace on television picked up and the I started to take my eye off the ball in terms of keeping the dealership going uh, I had a very good friend that I was working with at the time so um, I just decided to lessen the amount of cars that were running through my hands and concentrate more on the TV but it's fair to say I've never really stopped dealing so even though I've had this sort of long TV career now almost every year I'm still buying and you know up until when I opened Mike Brewer Motors I was still buying and selling dozens of cars you know a month uh, just for myself just for the fun of it and there's been what 170 episodes of wheeler dealers so far no i think it's more than that i think we're up to, yeah we're up to um 200 and 200 and something and i'm currently making 27 more at the moment obviously this started as a uk show and i know you did some us trips quite early on but what prompted the decision to move to the us permanently uh, that was discovery channel that was because uh, the show was already airing in the us and it was incredibly popular on the network over there but that was no reason for us to house the show there it became it came from the audience the audience were demanding more and more episodes uh, they were badgering us and badgering Discovery Channel and it was always the topic of conversation between me, Ed at that time and, and the crew and the team. How can we produce more shows whilst keeping the, the content very high and keep this show where it is? And unless you sort of take away uh, some of the elements of the program, so one of the jobs on the car or uh, the searching sequence when I'm looking to buy the cars or the test drive at the end, unless you take something away, you simply can't fit more shows 
close in a year, particularly an English year, uh, because, you know, uh, as much as we all love this fantastic country of ours, uh, we do have harsh winters. And in TV, uh, well, in the TV world, you're guided by the daylight. So daylight from October disappears at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and it doesn't appear the next day until 9 o'clock in the morning. So rather than have a whole day's filming, you effectively only get half a day's filming in the winter per day. Uh, so we tried, me and Ed really did try. We we had one year we made 15 shows, and it nearly killed us. I mean, it absolutely destroyed me and Ed, and it destroyed the crew, everyone who was working on it, because to produce 15 shows, we literally had to do seven days a week to catch up the days that we couldn't film in the winter. We had no holidays, no vacation, you know, not, not, none of that stuff. You didn't get to see your friends and family. There was no life. So we said, well, let's not do that again. You know, we'll only ever sign, I think the maximum we'd ever signed for me and Ed back then was 12 episodes a year, which gave us at least a bit of time to go and have, you know, a, a bit of sunshine in Turkey or whatever in the summer. But the demands from Discovery Channel were more shows, more shows, more shows. They just wanted more shows and 12 wasn't good enough for them. So the only way to produce more shows is to combat where we're going to film it in the winter. So we thought, well, let's just film in the US during the winter. That that was Discovery's idea. They put Hollywood in Los Angeles for a reason. It's there for a reason. It's there because you get 364 days of sunshine a year. And that's the reason why they put it there. So uh, uh, Discovery Channel said, look, let's let's relocate you in the winter to the US. So we went over and we made 10 episodes in the US during the winter. We came back and made 10 episodes in the summer in the UK and we did that for, for a couple of seasons for two uh, two seasons of Wheel of Deal it was absolutely bloody brilliant we loved it but then the demand picked up again and now the audience are going 20 is great but we want more we want more we want more so they pushed for even more episodes and the only way to push for even more episodes was then to almost make us feel and the crew feel like we were you know almost having a holiday at the same time as making it so why not just load Locate the whole thing in Los Angeles where at least at the weekends the guys can go and sit on the beach or ride a push bike up and down a boardwalk or enjoy themselves a little bit more in the sunshine of California. So basically it just gravitated towards Los Angeles and, and what that meant is that we can now produce 27 shows a year which is incredible. You know, we're knocking out a show less than every two weeks, you know, every sort of 12 days we're restoring a car and uh, that's incredible that we've got that sort of workload and that work ethic and we can only do it whilst the sun's shining and i think despite the fact that it's clearly set in the u.s it's still unashamedly unapologetically a uk show isn't it between you and ant and the paint scheme in the workshop there's still very clear links to home i get a lot of people online complain that we've sold out to the u.s and uh, you've taken the yankee dollar and somebody said you're you know they're, they're very foul online people about it but it's ignorance really because they don't understand that it's still made by the same people that are still the there are British crew uh, that make it in the US. There are British producers, British editors, it's British presenters. It's effectively the equivalent of, and it's trying to explain this to people, if you think of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, when Ant and Deck go down to Australia for a month and make that programme, they're on location for a month. We are a British crew on location in Los Angeles. Uh, so I, I don't get that. You know, you've sold out nonsense because I pay my tax here. Uh, everyone else on the crew pays their tax here in the UK we fly back to the UK this is home the UK is home we just make a show on location in the US I keep saying to people I'm quite happy to come back to the UK I'm very happy 
In fact, in the future, I will be coming back to the UK, but we're going to go back down to 10 shows a year or 12 shows a year if that's what they want. In terms of Ed's departure, was there ever any pressure from the channel at that point to go with a US co-presenter? No, no, definitely not. No, when Ed decided to leave, that was purely his decision. He loved America. He, he actually relished the idea of being there. Part of the problem was he maybe enjoyed it a little bit too much because he wanted to have more time off to enjoy uh, the beach and the scenery around him. And good luck to him, you know, so did I. But ultimately, once he decided to leave, that was it. That was the end of the show. And it was done for a good four-month period. I was sitting at home licking my wounds thinking, wow, you know, because Ed wanted to leave, he's destroyed my career and and all the careers of the people that work on the show. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's dead. I, I really don't think this show is dead. I think it's got uh, a good life and I think it can come back with another mechanic. So um, it was me that when I'm fat, I already knew Ant. I was working with him anyway on live appearances at, at shows around the country. And I got some clips of Ant together that I found on the internet and I sent them forward to Discovery Channel and said, why don't we have a, another go at making Wheeler Dealers and let's bring this guy in. And it was about five months later they thought, it was, they thought he was great and uh, we did a, a test together and uh, once we did a test together you, the, the chemistry was fantastic the magic was still there uh, for Wheeler Dealers and um, thank God because it, you know everyone got their jobs back all the crew all the producers me I got my job back because at the moment I was unemployed and um, we not only went on to uh, you know make 27 Wheeler Dealers a year which is something we never did uh, with Ed uh, we also increased the audience globally by 30% um, it would just grew it. I'm very proud of that and the, the achievement by the whole team to, to be able to pull that off and what we've gone through, I think it's just been brilliant. And I think one of the things I often hear from people, and, and there are still a small number of people who've refused to watch the show without Ed because Ed was fundamental to their vision of what the show was, the perception is that there's less engineering now. But actually, I'd say there's more. And, there's much more. <laughs> and without being disrespectful to Ed, Ant seems to do a more thorough, more professional job. It feels less bodgy if that's even a word it's very true uh, look, Ed's brilliant Ed was a, an amazing guy a brilliant mechanic uh, fantastic screen presenter very laid back and that's what people loved about him and uh, he was fabulous but Ed was an engineer that's what he was he was an engineer he will tell you himself he's not a mechanic Ed will say I'm not a mechanic I'm an engineer and Ed you know didn't know everything that you had to do on these cars you have to you know we research the jobs and we, we work on the jobs together uh, where with Ant Ant is a mechanic that's what he is he's a genuine mechanic and um, Ant is more of a teacher he sort of teaches you like a headmaster would Ed sort of went along with you and Ant sort of tells you what to do and that's I hate the fact that people think there's a difference between the two because they're both brilliant you know in their own uh, own right Um, but I laugh at these people that say uh, and I'll see it 20 times a day and you will do off the back of this podcast in the comment section Uh, those people will say absolutely it was much better with Ed Uh, there was much more mechanics it's simple fundamentally utterly not true and I, it's easy to prove it just put on an old show when I used to buy a car go and see it search for it then I would test drive the car I wouldn't even hand the car over to Ed until part way through part two so we were a good 20 minutes into the show before Ed even got his hands on it Ed would then do three jobs on each car and look at the show now where 
Uh, I don't search for the car anymore. I, the show starts with me on my way to go and see a car. It's very quick when I look around the car and buy it. I hand it over to Ant well into the first part and Ant starts the first job in the first part. So we've got much, much more engineering, much, much more workshop stuff uh, with Ant in the show than we ever have before. And I know that because I helped write it. And, uh, you know, there's a big team of people around us and we listen to the audience and we go, well, they want more mechanics. They want less mic. I get that if people want less mic. So let's put less mic in there. And I'm quite happy not to sit there and type away at a computer and film that scene where I'm searching for them. Uh, I'm quite happy to do that and just be on my way to go and see the car and cut my role down uh, less if it means that the show succeeds and the show's successful and people love it. I'm quite happy to, to move myself back into the shadows a bit because I love the show. You know, I, love I mean, you, that makes it sound as though you just top and tail it, but you still do quite a lot more than that. Exactly. Uh, lots of people, it's another little mystery that me and the crew and, you know, our team of people around us, it's a little mystery to wheeler dealers. We scratch our heads at when I do on every single show, I do something to the car. I either change an interior, you know, skim an engine uh, block or I do something and people will write in as they're watching it and they will say, even if it's me putting, fitting the electric windows to the Thunderbird, 57 Thunderbird, I'm fitting the electric windows people will say, Ed, I loved you fitting the windows to the Thunderbird. They just, they, they, there's this little thing in people's head that they just can't separate the work from the mechanic. They don't think that I do anything, but little do they know that, and lots of people out there do know me, uh, when the cameras aren't rolling, it's us lot in the workshop, including me, the sound recorders, the cameraman, we're all engineering, we're all jumping into the car to move it on so we can film the next bit. So um, yeah, I, I build an awful lot of the cars. Now, obviously, a lot of the listeners to this podcast are primarily interested in things Alfa Romeo related. I was quite surprised when I looked back at the episode list, because in my mind, there were a lot more Alphas in there. But I guess that's what comes from watching the same episodes again and again and again on repeat. In fact, you've only done four Alphas out of all the cars you've done, and two of those since you moved to the States. I think two Spiders, an Alpha Sud and a 164. The one you seem most excited about, though, was the Sud. Oh my God, I love that car. I love that car. Uh, listen, I'm a, a mega, massive, huge Alpha fan. And you would have seen this every time I, I feature an Alpha on Wheeler Dealers. You would have heard me say these words. If you're a car person, at one time in your life, you need to own an Alfa Romeo. Otherwise, you simply won't understand automotive engineering, automotive excellence, and design language. You we, you won't understand it. Because Alpha, let's face it, are it, it, you, the difference between what I I tried to say to the audience is the difference between an Alpha and a Ford Focus is an Alpha was designed by people that absolutely loved it. You can feel every part of that car is built with passion and love, where a Ford Focus is built by a robot on a computer. If you can get that across to the audience, and I try every single time I sit behind the wheel of an Alpha, it's gold. You know, it's golden if I can deliver that message to the audience. And yes, we have done a few on Wheeler Dealers. We've done four. There might be some more coming up in the future, which I'm not allowed to tell you about, but we have number four but the alpha sud is by far my favorite i just i'm a kid of the 80s you know i love that hot hatch feel and i just remember you know the first time i got in that that 1.5 alpha sud when i was a kid and put my foot down with that little raspy engine i i was transfixed i thought god this is i thought it was better than a golf gti a peugeot 205 i thought i thought it was better than everything yeah i've had three i've had two sprints and an alpha sud saloon and i'd have another one tomorrow so would I, if you could find one. Unfortunately, they were made in a period of not good steel. You hinted that there might be some more coming, but I guess now you're in North America permanently. You know, there haven't been any alphas sold in the US for over 20 years, or, or there weren't any until the 
the 4C relaunch. So it must make it quite difficult to find cars of the right age and condition. Well, the good thing is in America, particularly in the state of California, which is where we're based, the cars are brilliant. You know, so I've managed to find that that 164 was almost like brand new, that car. And the Spider that I found, which was up in Northern California, again, that car was rust free. It was, I can't say the word properly. It's quadrifoglio. So how would you say it? Quadrifoglio. Yeah, just, I say quadrifoglio. I say quadrifoglio, but the amount of people that wrote in to me and said, oh, you're saying it wrong. I'm going, there's a, no, there's I'm... a tiny little G in there that an Italian can get away with leaving in and everybody else sounds wrong. Oh, no. So I, I thought I said it right and everyone's telling me I said it wrong. I said quadrifoglio. But those cars were rust-free uh, and that's the benefit of being in California. You know, we don't talk that much about rust anymore. And you never say never with wheeler dealers. It's not permanently based in America. We are currently in the process process of producing another uh, big series uh, but the series thereafter might very well be back here in the United Kingdom which means that you know I could talk about Rust and Alfa Romeo's again. <laughs> Have you ever actually owned an Alfa yourself or do you not really own cars in the same sense that the rest of us do? course i do no i've got a big car collection i've had plenty of alphas in my time i remember running a spider i had a uh, a 72 spider almost like the one that we had in the program i had a 72 spider after i bought a lotus elan in 1991 uh, an m100 which i absolutely loved it was just the most fantastic front wheel drive car ever and it was my first proper little convertible for myself and my wife before we had a child and i loved that and i ran it for a summer and then i sold it believe it or not for a profit because because they were still very, very sought after, although they were still new, they were sought after. And uh, when I sold the car, I immediately went into a tin top car and missed the thrill of a convertible again. So I went and bought myself uh, an early 72 um, Spider. It was in red. It was lovely. I don't think, and this is the truth, even when it rained, I don't think I ever put the roof up on that car. I couldn't tell you what the condition of the roof was like. I just drove it everywhere with a roof down. And I kept that for about nine months till I sold it. And then Many years later, I bought a, a Giulietta, uh, which I absolutely love, a 1959 Giulietta, which I loved. And I run that car for a while. That's a car that I'll be looking to put in wheeler dealers. I run that car for a while. Absolutely loved it. It was faulty. The car did have a lot of issues. And the mechanic who had dedicated his time to keeping that car roadworthy for me during the repair phase, and it was like literally every month he had to do something to it, he more or less just fell in love with it and said, I want to buy it. So I sold it to him. In fact, I sold it to him for the amount of money that I owed him for repairing it. <laughs> it, was, it was just like, keep it to clear the debt. <laughs> we were talking before the recording about people using rare classic cars as everyday transport. Are there any other Alphas you fancy owning in the future? I mean, if you can find me a 33 Stradale that I can uh, I can use as my daily driver, please. Yeah. I would very much like that. Yeah. Uh, I nearly bought a Montreal. You know when I, on Wheeler Dealers, did you ever watch the Lamborghini Uraco episode? Yeah. Yeah. So in that barn in Poland, when I found the Uraco, part next to that, which you might see if you watch the show again, uh, was a Montreal, and it was lovely. It was it, it like the uh, the Uraco. It's just like it was time locked. It was wonderful. This thing, and uh, I agreed there and then off camera that I bought it for 12,000 euros and that was all the way back then and I thought oh, I can't wait to get this car back to England and we did the film with Iraco got it back and somewhere between me coming back to England and recontacting with him he'd mentioned the fact that he'd sold it to me for 12,000 euros uh, to one of his friends and his friend bought it for 12,000 euros instead because he thought it was easier but I was gutted because I nearly had that car that was a keeper as well I would have kept that one 
My son watches another popular car restoration project program and he'll immediately go and look up the number plate on the MOT check site as soon as they appear and often they get a ticket a couple of weeks before the transmission date and then they never have another one. You used to follow up on cars to see what happened to them in the years after you sold them. Do you have any plans to do that again? Yeah, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. It was awful. You know, that show, that series was absolutely diabolical. It was awful. It's called uh, Wheeler Dealers Revisited. We often say, why don't you go back and find these cars again? What happened is, is we sent Ed out to go and meet the guy that bought the Morris Traveller or whatever it was. And uh, you, you stand there and say, so you bought the car? Yes. What's it like? Great. And there you are. That's it. <laughs> what, what, it's just the most boring program ever. Yeah, I guess they're either still fine or they're not. Knackered, yeah, which doesn't do us any good, does it, as a TV show? So what I have done is uh, I have just been, I put out on social media just last week, I put a screenshot up of several of the cars that we featured on Wheeler Dealers, and I've said, where are they now? And I've been inundated with people that have got cars, owned cars, bought cars and sold cars from Wheeler Dealers, and I've got them each to uh, send me some words and a picture of them with the car, and I'm building up a, a nice item about it, of which I'll be putting on a, a a brand new website that's coming soon at Mike Brewer Motoring is a new website that's coming and that's going to be a section on the website which is where are they now you'll be able to rather than sit there and get those apps out where everyone seems to be obsessed with trying to chase these cars down just go on the website and you'll meet the people that actually own them I'll have to have a word with the Alpha Sud registrar to see if he knows where that little black Sud went Unfortunately, what happens sometimes on wheeler dealer cars is as soon as the show goes out, the people sell them. You know, a lot of people that buy them on the show, they know that they bought something that's going to be wanted as soon as the show airs and they sell them. And sometimes, you know, they go abroad, you know, they disappear and, and they, you know, there's cars that we've done on wheeler dealers in Japan, Australia, Germany, France. They, they just disappear out of the country so you'll never see them again. Another spin off that looked good fun, if a lot of hard work, was trading up. Any plans to do something like that again? Yeah, so uh, Trading Up is a show that I wrote back in 2004. It was originally called Rex to Riches. It appeared on ITV. Um, then it's just sort of morphed itself over the years and, and it changed into Trading Up, uh, which we did two global series of that. That was fantastic. And then it's morphed again. We've kept the concept of Trading Up and we've just done a series called Dream Car that was on uh, Discovery. Uh, so Wheeler Dealer's Dream Car is me and a new mechanic, a guy called uh, Mark Priestley, people out there name is Elvis. Mark is a Formula One mechanic and he came along to help me on Dream Car whilst Ant was in America doing his alpha build, funny enough, he's a master mechanic build. So I had Elvis back here and we put together eight episodes of Dream Car that's now transmitted globally and um, a huge, huge impact it's had uh, for the Wheeler Dealer franchise and Discovery Channel just demanded another 10. So uh, I'll be doing that again. There's a lot of talk in the press about classic car prices booming, as they tend to when there's a financial crisis or, or even a hint of a financial crisis. But that's mostly the exotic stuff. Your interest always seems to have been in more down-to-earth cars. Is that fair? It is very fair, yeah. I mean, look, everyone likes an aspirational classic car. Uh, you know, I'd love a Ferrari 250 GTO. Who wouldn't? I'd love a an Aston Martin DB4 Zagato, of course. But they are simply out of reach to the modern man and that you are targeting, you know, a tiny percentage of the global population. That's all you can attract uh, with cars like that. And my ethos has always been about educating people to have a go themselves, but with 
the car that they can literally find parked in their town, in their village, wherever they live, and they can aspire to go and do exactly what we're doing on screen. So I've always, whenever we put Wheeler Dealers together, I always drive us as a team to only think of cars somewhere between a thousand and twenty thousand pounds, uh, no more really. The conversations we had about the Austin Healey three thousand were fantastical because the arguments that ensued over that car with me and the network because um, I was buying it for $35,000. And that's way beyond my ethos or the Wheeler Dealer remit. It was way more expensive. But as I kept explaining to, to the network and I was explaining to the, to the crew that if we don't do it now, we're never going to do it. So the chances are we'll never feature a, an Austin Healy 3000 ever in the show because the prices are going from, on a weekly basis, they were going from 20 to 25, 25 to 30, 30 to 30. On a weekly basis, I said, look, we have to get into this market now. And we did. We paid uh, $37,000 for the vehicle. And uh, I I was proved right because just uh, two months later, we sold it for (laughs) $75,000. So thank God, you know, but that's that's stretching my own ethos of what Wheeler Dealers should always be about. And you will see in the upcoming series, I'm buying cars for $1,000. I bought a car for, I think I bought three cars for $2,000, as in $2,000 each car that's coming up in the in the next series. So yeah, I always try to keep it more realistic so we can all have a go. With a few exceptions, most Wheeler dealers restorations tend to be fairly true to the original. I know there are a few Alpha Sud enthusiasts screaming at the telly when Ed fitted polybushes, but mostly it's about returning cars to the condition they would have been when they left the factory. What are your views on the whole resto mod scene, singer Porsches or much closer to our listeners' hearts? Things like the Alphaholics, GTAR, Bertone Coupes. Love them. Absolutely love them. If you can take a car, I'll go back to that Alpha Surge. You know, that had absolutely, when we got that car, uh, one of the things about it was it was all over the place. You know, on the road, it was just very wayward. Although you've got a very fast engine, a very clicky little gearbox, unfortunately, you had no confidence to push it into a bend because it was too wayward. Now, you can either go for original rubbers or bushes and put those in, or you can give the car some absolute longevity and make sure that it's just going to what they'll never be changing again and just go for poly bushes I mean at the end of the day you know it's a bit like I remember doing it at the time and, and somebody from the Alfa Romeo community uh, very vocal online said I can't believe you put poly bushes on that car and I remember at the time I said it's a bit like bottom paint for a boat you know how many times are you going to look at it you're just never going to get you know you don't dive in the water to look at your bottom paint on a boat do you so um, you know it, it's the same with that Alfa how many people are going to lay down on the floor when you pull up at Tesco's and look underneath your car and go, oh, you put poly bushes on that. You shouldn't have done that. I think the argument was more that the suspension was designed to have a little bit of give in the bushes. I totally disagree. The car drove amazing at the end. It was as tight as a drum. Uh, it had much more confidence behind the wheel, and I thought it was bloody fantastic. But in terms of resto modding cars, it's not really my scene. It's not really my world, resto modding. I, I understand it, uh, and I'm understanding it more and more. But if, if there's anyone out there that can save a car by making it better, I'm all for it. You mentioned Ant's in-between season activity with the Alfetta 158 let's call it a tribute apart from your role as drone cameraman in that and your dream car project what have you been up to recently 
It's been my busiest year ever. I still can't believe that, you know, 23 years in and I'm I'm getting, I'm doing more and more work. I thought I'd be able to, you know, sort of semi-retire by now, if I was to be honest with you. Uh, but when Ant was making um, the Master Mechanic series with the Alpha, uh, I was back in England making Dream Car. And then I nipped back to America before we carried on with Wheeler Dealers. And I made another series called Mike Brewer's World of Cars, which is where I went and put myself uh, all over uh, the the US and the UK and uh, when it met the craftspeople, the engineers, the artisans that keep this wonderful world of the classic car alive and I got to hang out with Gene Winfield the legendary hot rod designer 94 years of age and he's still stretching metal, it's just incredible I went and found uh, the two guys that witnessed the birth of NASCAR around the town centre of Charlotte when his dad was chased around the town square uh, five times by the police who couldn't catch him and they drove around in a clockwise sorry anti-clockwise they chased him around the town square and uh, somebody noticed that and said you know what we should do that as a race and uh, there was the birth of NASCAR they were moonshine runners and I went and uh, explored all of that and it was just a thrill you know absolute thrill to, to be able to do that I come back to England and went um, and look how wiring looms are built and metal spinning in Birmingham and British motor heritage looking and rebuilding the Mark 1 mini body shells and I got to do this amazing series 12 episodes uh, and then straight back into more wheeler dealers you know another 27 wheeler dealers so my busiest ever year and how's the lockdown fallen into all of that apart from the extreme social distancing with you and Ant were you in an editing and post-production phase or is it disrupted filming as well oh yeah it's, it's been a disaster if I was to be honest with you I um, I flew home to come and visit my daughter in February uh, and uh, when I popped back home at the end of February with a return flight back to America the following week with my wife we were nine shows into the production of Wheeler Dealers and they are in various states of completion and um, when we were back here, Donald Trump went on television and said no more people allowed back in the US. It happened so quickly within a, you know, a, there was no warning to it. It sort of just, you know, he'd come out and said it one evening on the on the TV. And the next day, um, we were phoning the airline, couldn't get through to say, can we still get on an aeroplane and get back? And uh, they said, no, that was it. Uh, so we've been, me and my wife traveled back to England with seven days worth of underwear. And we're four months later, we're still here and we can't get back. But, um, we are moving heaven and earth to get back to finish this series because we do have to we have a global demand for wheeler dealers and there's contracts in place globally that people need their shows and we will get there sooner rather than later but I've made it really productive you know I've been writing other shows which I, I write several, several of the other shows you see on TV actually probably the other car show that your son I, I wrote that I think I know which one you're on about I wrote that I've written shows for a Discovery Channel all over uh, National Geographic Discovery Channel. So I write, uh, I've been writing some other shows. I've been doing a weekly classic car lock-in with Paul Cowland from Salvage Hunters Classic Cars. Uh, and that's been fun to do that and uh, engage with the audience very much like you're doing here with your podcast and uh, answering their classic car questions. And I've been uh, having a live show every Thursday night where I've been hosting that on Facebook where I've had guests like Frank Stephenson, the legendary car designer, Jason Plato, the touring car driver. Uh, last night I had Simon Gregson, Corey 
Coronation Street actor Steve McDonald, who's a huge car nut, and uh, and I've been doing these live shows every Thursday night, and they've been absolutely fabulous. I've enjoyed every single minute of it. So I've been making myself really useful. I haven't sat around in my tracksuit bottoms watching Netflix. I've been out there doing stuff. I, I also, um, it's worth a mention because you know, no, I don't like blowing my own trumpet. People will say you do, Mike, but I don't. But I've also been doing, and I've really enjoyed this. I've done the NHS volunteering as well. So uh, I put myself down as a driver, you know, delivering medicines to people and boxes to care homes and hospitals. It's been bloody brilliant. So I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed doing that at the same time. You've not tried to sell any of the vehicles you're doing the deliveries in. Funny enough, some people have recognised me when I've pulled up at their driveway. And uh, I did, on when we had the blazing sunshine, I, I've got a 1959 MGA. And I thought, you know, there's nothing in the rules that says that I can't take my classic car out to go and do these deliveries. So I went pottering around in my, my MGA. I felt like I was, you know, in the 50s. It was just bloody brilliant. And I'm delivering parcels to people and big smiles on their faces. You know, when they see a classic car at the end of the driveway and me, in my PPE gear, giving them a friendly wave as I drop their things on their doorstep. It just, it was an amazing, amazing time. I've not done any recently because it seems to have stopped, which is great. Thank you very much for that, Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Good luck with the podcast and let me know when it goes live. Thanks very much, Mike. Well, that's it for this week. And in fact, it's the last of our weekly podcasts. As things start slowly to return to normal and people start to get out and about at the weekends, we're going to slightly reduce the frequency of the episodes. There's still plenty of good stuff lined up though and we'll be back in two weeks' time on the 19th of July with the 159 registrar and unashamed modder Chris McDonald. We might be skipping a week but episode 10 will still be available from all the usual places Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, the Arup website, Podcast Addict and YouTube among others at the usual time of 1.30pm. Until then, as always, stay safe. Stay safe.